You know, I never fully remember how much I just don't have hair until I see it on there. Like, wow, gosh. Sorry, that's where I'm at right now. Uh, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, great way to start. Really well done, me. Um, when I was in high school, my friends and I um, had this kind of running joke where we would talk about, hey, when we grow up, we're going to try to get every like certification, educational certificate, whatever it is, to get as many titles as possible so that we can just stack them all end on end and sound really, really impressive. So it's like that sort of deal where somebody would be like, oh, hello, Mr. Sturgeon. would be like, it's Dr. Sturgeon. <laughs> but my, my senior pastor at the church I went to growing up uh, did have a doctorate, but he was also an ordained minister. So he was the reverend doctor. And I was like, ooh, two is better than one, you know? Uh, what if I was the reverend doctor, Chris Sturgeon? That'd be really cool. Um, and then I found out that all you have to do is go to law school and pass the bar, and you can put Esquire at the end of your name. I could be the Reverend Dr. Christurgeon Esquire. Now we're really getting somewhere. But we're not done yet, because if you're going to go through all the hassle to graduate from law school and pass the bar, you might as well become a judge as well, right? His honor, the Reverend Dr. Christurgeon Esquire. Pretty good, but I'm not done yet, because at that point I intend to move to England become a naturalized citizen, do something spectacular for the crown, and get knighted. Huh? His honor, the Reverend Dr. Sir Christopher Sturgeon Esquire. Huh? Pretty good. That's a lot of education, though. And I, I have to suspect that if I could get that much education, I will probably have figured out how to build a time machine. Because they were way better at extra titles in the past. So I could go way back, right? And then I would be his honor, the Reverend Doctor, Sir Christopher Sturgeon, Esquire, the first of his name. Huh? Yeah? Right? You would be impressed by a person who walked in and introduced themselves with 37 words, right? I would have to get an extra large business card just to fit all of that on there. And I, I think that would be impressive, but I, I relate that story because from a very early age on, I had this sense that I wanted to grow and advance. And it kind of spread into every category of my life. It's like I want to get, you know, when you're younger, you especially, I want to get bigger, stronger, faster. I want to be smarter, funnier, more popular. I want to get better looking. I want to be more successful. And then we become adults and we find new things, right? New areas that I want my life to grow and expand into. I want a better apartment, a bigger house. I want to get a promotion and a raise and then another promotion. I want to have a ton of people who work for me and must do as I say. I think um, I'm 40. I've got two little kids. Um, the, the biggest sign of growth now is you have to have the perfect family picture, you know? Like the, the kind of picture that screams, these people did not yell at each other all morning. Everyone didn't cry trying to make this picture so that all of the people who follow us can know what a perfect family we are, right? We want better vacations. We want better cars. We want better clothes. There's a part inside of me that wants to make sure that every aspect of my life is always moving up and to the right, right? I want my life to look like this emoji right here, that I'm always getting better. Profits are up. The business is growing. My life is on this linear path where it gets better and better and better. 
And I kind of need other people to know it too. I feel that. And I know it's not just me because um, I have children. And talk about a great microcosm to see the depravity in the human soul. So um, I have two daughters. And this year we signed them up for gymnastics for the first time, right? And so we signed them up, they're five and eight. Uh, but they both had to be in the level one class, which was great for the five-year-old because everyone else was five. The eight-year-old was not as excited. Um, and their first day, very first day, I'm sitting on these bleachers and I'm kind of watching and they come over for a water break and I hear my daughter, Nora, my eldest daughter, talking to another girl in her class. And she's looking down like this and this girl's looking up like this. And Nora's like, yeah, I'm actually a level three, but they just want me to like start in this class and just kind of help out a little bit. <laughs> and I, in my head, I'm like, you liar. What a dirty liar. She must have gotten that from her mom because I would not have done that, you know? We want people to be impressed with us. But more than that, we want to actually have that life that is impressive. Um, I often feel this way in my spiritual life, too. It's not just kind of contained in what I do and how I work, that sort of thing. I, I feel like, you know, I should read the Bible more and I should pray more. And every time I pray, it needs to be effortless and deep and beautiful. And they're, they're like candles will spontaneously light themselves and soft music plays in the background. Like I want to be up and to the right. I, and I can get this idea that the goal of my life is for me to become more and more like Jesus while I'm simultaneously gaining more and more in every other category of my life. I'll bet I don't have to ask if anyone in this room can relate to that sense. That no matter where I'm at, I need to get a little bit more. I think it's so firmly ingrained in our culture that wherever you are isn't far enough, that we need to get more. It is kind of a piece of what it means to be alive in this moment in history. So we're starting a new series today called John, The Journey to the Cross. And this is the series that's gonna lead us right into Easter, and we're gonna be going through the Gospel of John and the life and ministry of Jesus there. And, and what I want to talk about today gets illustrated really well in chapter one, but it will remain a theme through the entire book of John, and it's this. It's that the journey that Jesus chooses to walk is incredibly countercultural. We feel a pull to this kind of up and to the right lifestyle. And Jesus chooses a journey that is very different and that has a lot of meaning for us. So we're gonna jump into what the Bible has to say. Let me say a quick prayer and then we'll do so. God, thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for this place, the opportunity to be together. Um, God, we thank you that we're able to uh, live stream this so that folks who aren't able to get out because of the snow can still join in with this community as we turn our hearts towards you. Lord, I pray that you would begin to open our eyes to the things that get attached to our faith but that aren't actually from you, God, that we might see and obey the kind of life that you have called us to live. It's in your name we pray, amen. Okay, John chapter one, verses one through five says this. In the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God 
and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. So in the Bible, there are four books that are called Gospels, and they are um, life stories, essentially, of Jesus that talk about his time on earth, his public ministry, and ultimately his betrayal, arrest, crucifixion, and resurrection. And all four start in slightly different places. So one of them, the Gospel of Mark, it begins with Jesus as an adult. He shows up on the scene and he begins his kind of public ministry. People start to know who he is, and that's where the book starts. Now Luke wrote another one, but he thinks that we need to start the story a little bit sooner to fully understand who Jesus is and what he came to do. And so Luke starts with the birth of Jesus. Uh, it's Luke that we most often read at Christmas time to understand the birth narrative of Jesus. Now, Matthew wrote another gospel, and he thinks we need to start even sooner to fully understand. And so he starts uh, with a genealogy and traces Jesus all the way back to a man named Abraham, right? He's kind of the father of the Hebrew people and the start of God's kind of story and working through history through those people. But John, John takes the cake. He says none of that is early enough. He starts the story all the way back to before back existed, right? He says that the word is pre-existence. Before there's a timeline, there is the word, and the word is Jesus. And then he goes on to tell us some really impressive things about him. Like, with, from what I just read, you could make a list of titles so much better than adding Esquire to the end of your name. Listen to this. This is, if, if, if I, if John 1 was about me, this is what you could call me. The pre-existent Chris Sturgeon, both with God and God's self, creator of all things, sole source of life, the indefatigable and unovercomable origin of light, vanquisher of darkness, holder of all things. The first of his name, right? <laughs> Here's the point. In the first five verses of, of his story about who Jesus is, John is making it very clear he's kind of a big deal. He's kind of the biggest deal. He's the uppest and rightest that you can be. And so it gets a little hard to imagine what's going to happen next. It goes on. This is verses 10 and 11 in, in chapter 1 of John. He came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. He's moving in the wrong direction here. It kind of reminds me, I don't know if anybody saw this, it was like a, a clip that um, it showed up on the news, and if you're on any kind of social media, it probably popped up. So the Atlanta Braves won the World Series uh, this past year. And when your team wins a world championship, you get to have a parade. It's a pretty normal thing. And so, so the Braves have a parade going through Atlanta, and one of their relief pitchers, Tyler Matzik, gets off the bus, and he's running in front of the bus, and he's like, woo, you know, he's got his jersey on. But the police think it's just some dude who jumped the barrier, and they detain him, right? He is a World Series champion pitcher at his own parade, and he almost gets arrested before he has to get like his ID out and prove that he actually is a member of the team. 
That's kind of what's happening with Jesus here, right? He comes to his own people. He should be received with honor and praise and glory. And it says that they rejected him. They didn't recognize him. He just made a move where he didn't get better. He didn't advance. He didn't grow. In fact, he moved in the the wrong direction. His emoji so far looks a little bit like this, right? He's trending in the wrong direction. John goes on. This is uh, verse 14. So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. This version, this is the New Living Translation, it says, uh, the word became human. Um, if, you've, if you've heard this passage before, you've probably heard it translated as the word became flesh. There's a pastor um, named Eugene Peterson who years ago wrote a paraphrase of the Bible, trying to put it in like really, really understandable modern terms. And the way that he translated it is, the word put on flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. And every time I've read this part of the Bible, and every time I've heard it talked about, is we've focused on this amazingly beautiful theme about the nearness of God. That in Jesus, God refuses to be far away and separated from us, but comes alongside us. That we are able to experience the closeness and love of God in that way. What's interesting is as I prepared for this, I realized there's a, there's a second piece of meaning to be found in the story as well. Because from verse one of John's gospel, all the way through his ultimate execution on the cross, Jesus seems determined to walk a path in life that is on a downward trajectory by our common standards. Every um, Tuesday morning from seven to eight, just outside those curtains, I I sit with a group of guys and we have a men's Bible study. And if you've never been and you want to come, it's every Tuesday, 7 to 8. We'd love to have you drop in. And we've been reading the Gospel of Mark in that group, and I think we've done like eight chapters in eight months. So it's really fast-paced, a lot of homework getting done. Um, Generally, we'll read a paragraph and then we'll talk about it for an hour and have like really fantastic conversation. But one thing that I've noticed, I've never read through the story of Jesus' life that slowly and that intentionally. And it's made me realize and see different things that I never noticed before. And among them is this. Jesus is a terrible pastor. He does not know how to build a church. He's doing, he, he does everything wrong. Crowds keep flocking to him, and instead of capitalizing on the momentum and getting them signed up for membership class, he sneaks off in the middle of the night and hides in the desert so that they'll get away from him. Instead of like all these like really influential, important people keep trying to get time with him and he doesn't have time for them and he spends it with all of these nobodies on the margin. Like Jesus, this is, you're, that's, no, it's the wrong, that was the wrong choice. He doesn't seem to have the same purposes that we usually have. There's one point where a crowd, it says that they try to forcibly, they try to make him king by force. And he does like a ninja vanish thing where he like, like he magically disappears to get away from them. I don't really know how you forcibly make someone a king, but they tried and it didn't work. See, rather than comporting himself to maximize his own growth and gain, we constantly see Jesus humbling himself with service and sacrifice. And he has this other bad habit too, 
This is the hardest one to deal with. He has this disturbing tendency to tell everybody around him that they probably ought to do the same thing. See, I have a hard time. I have a hard time dealing with that. I have a hard time listening to that message because I don't really want to go down. I want to go up. Pretty often, in fact, when something in my life doesn't go as I thought it would, when things haven't come out to plan, when I'm moving in the wrong direction, I get kind of upset. I can have this like, what the heck, God? Like, we were going here. Why didn't this happen? Life is supposed Life is supposed to progress for me on a linear path that just gets better and better. And I think the word supposed in that sentence, that life is supposed to do this, is the key word for me at least. Because I do feel that way. I get to feeling like I am entitled to the ease and the comfort and the advancement that I want. It's funny that more than maybe any generation and culture in history, we are effectively able to insulate ourselves from discomfort, right? Like, uh, I'll, bet, I'll bet three quarters of this room have an app on your phone right now that can alert your house you're on the way home to make sure the temperature is just right, you know? Like, I have a plus or minus three degree comfort zone and, and heaven forbid that I ever not, I guess not here, it is always cold here, so. This is the one place where we can advance in our spiritual journey, right? Um, do you remember curiosity? Remember that? There's a thing we used to have where we would wonder something and then we'd have to like wait to figure it out. But now we all have a, uh, I left my phone down there. I like to call it the why wonder machine. And be like, what year did Third Eye Blind drop semi-charm kind of life? And I don't have to wonder because I can just ask Siri and she'll tell me. Like, like we don't. Everything we want is at our fingertips. Um, my family and I were up uh, in the mountains this weekend and uh, with a couple other families from our neighborhood. And I drove down this morning, and so I started driving it uh, early, we'll say. Um, I don't know if you've ever been in the mountains in the winter in the morning, but it's cold then. But fortunately, my car has a heated steering wheel because how dare Mother Nature have the audacity to make my fingertips cold, right? We... <laughs> We are so comfortable. I can get so used to being able to avoid even the slightest hint of discomfort that, you know, if I get a particularly bad hangnail, I can look at it and be like, there is no God. Like, right? And obviously, I, I jest. But if I'm totally honest with you, very often in my life, my kind of default mode is to believe that I am owed all of the good things that I hope for. And if they are withheld from me, if I don't get what I want, then something is, then a, then a wrong has been done to me. But then I look at Jesus. Then we look at the one person to whom all good things actually are owed. And instead of seeing someone who is focused on his entitlements, on his rights, we see a person, an image of a man who was far more concerned about his obligations. He wasn't acting out based upon what he should get, but based upon what he may give. 
uh, Paul, who wrote a very large portion of the New Testament, will talk about this downward movement in Jesus' life um, in his letter to the church of the Philippians. So Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8 says this. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to, be, as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Last Wednesday was the beginning of Lent. You might have seen some people with some ashes on their forehead to commemorate that. And traditionally, it's been a common practice for people to give something up during the season of Lent. And, and last week, somebody asked me, why do we do that? And I wasn't actually sure how to answer that question at first. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized there's a lot of ways to answer that question. But one of them is this. By, by choosing to give up some, something, it's an opportunity to remind ourselves that we don't have to be slaves to our desires. That we are able to endure discomfort it's a tangible exercise to break us out of the routine of always chasing more for ourselves. And it can help us refocus on where God would have us go. Um, on Mondays, I get to be a part of our vintage Bible study, which is a Bible study for all of our senior citizens here in the church, or, or those the, the most wizened among you, I think is how the the slide that we put up there sometimes says. And so if that's you, uh, Mondays, three to four, would love to have you join us um, right here. But a friend of mine, um, as we were closing our discussion, said something that I haven't been able to get out of my head all week. She said, sometimes we have to remember that it isn't God's job to make me happy. And, and listen, don't take that to mean that God wants you to be unhappy. What she was really saying is that God's primary objective in life is not to give us everything that we have decided we want or deserve. And it's nowhere better illustrated than in Jesus, that God himself as a person who made it very clear and on the night before he would be betrayed, arrested, and led towards execution, that this is not what he wanted. Jesus' words in prayer in the garden to God where if there is any way that this cup could pass from me, let it, but not my will be done, but yours. And it's in that, it's this, Jesus surrenders. He surrenders his will, his desire, his objective, his goals in order to be in line with what God is already doing. And there's a lesson for us to learn there. And here's what it is. I have to recognize I am not the main character in this story. And that can be hard to get my head around because in sophomore year in my English class, I was told that the character who appears the most often in the book is the protagonist. That's the main character. And so far, I've been in every scene of my life. Yeah, thank you. 
but I'm not, I'm not the protagonist. See, I'm actually just a bit player in a much larger plot line. I'm a drop of water in the rushing river of God's action in this world that is leading towards an unimaginably beautiful conclusion. I am not a mortal being with just the briefest of lifespans struggling to get as much as I can before I go. I am the possessor of an eternal soul who has a never-ending future in God's great kingdom. And I know you might think, isn't that kind of depressing to not be the main character, to just be a, just a role player? And I don't, I don't think so. But I do think that sometimes we have a hard time defining what the good life actually is. Um, the most expensive zip code in the United States to live in is 94027. And that is the zip code for Atherton, California. It's a small little place nestled in the Silicon Valley, um, home to exclusively CEOs and venture capitalists. And I used to live across the street from Atherton and probably like the third most expensive zip code. So we were slumming it at 94025. Um, I worked at a church in the Silicon Valley for seven years before I came here. And it gave me a unique perspective and insight into the lives of some of the most up and to the right people on the planet. Um, nothing against any of you guys, but those were the most impressive people I've ever met, right? The best educations. They were, everyone was brilliant and successful and the best, in, and, they, and somehow everyone was like handsome and all the men had perfect hair and I didn't fit in. They had every title, right? You couldn't put something more impressive on their business card than where they were at that point. And you know what, it was not the happiest place on earth. Turns out, if I learned anything in my time out there, it is that the up and to the right life doesn't actually take you where you hope. It doesn't deliver on what it promises but it will exhaust your soul and wear you out. See, in Jesus, we have been given this other way, this incredibly counter-cultural way to live, a way in which we have been invited to follow him. It's a way of sacrifice, it's a way of service, but most of all, it's a way of surrender. Surrendering to God's plot line and the current of what God's purposes in this world are. It's a way that asks, what may I give, far more than it is concerned with what should I get. And as a final thought, I know that idea of surrendering our will, our hopes, our goals, our vision for life can feel like the forfeiture of freedom. Like, shouldn't I be free to pursue those things? And I would, I would pose this question. Who experiences more freedom? The person who swims doggedly into the waves, using the force of their own will and abilities to get where they want to go and to grab what they want in life. Who experiences more freedom? That person. Or the person who surrenders to the wave, hops on a board, and rides it wherever God might lead him or her. 
I'm going to invite the band to come back on stage and join me because we are going to get to together practice one of the oldest traditions um, in the Christian church, and that is the taking of communion. So um, on your, if you're in the room, on your way in, hopefully you got one of these. Uh, if you didn't, uh, the prayer team is in the back and they've got some extras for you. Um, if you're at home, feel free to just grab any kind of liquid and any kind of food, and uh, this is something that we can all do together. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he had a final dinner with those whom he loved most. And at that dinner, he took a, a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he distributed it to them. And he said, take, this is my body broken for you. This was a symbol of Jesus' surrender to the larger plot line of what God was doing in the world and his role in it. So if you want to peel off the very top layer there, there's a little wafer. And together, I will invite us to eat that. And after dinner, Jesus took a cup, a cup of wine. He held up and he said, this is my body, or this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for many. This is the sealing action in what's about to happen to me. This is the last downward movement upon which Jesus takes upon himself all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our guilt, all of our brokenness onto himself and says that through this gift, you will find life. So we can pull that top off right there and know that this is the blood of Jesus poured out for you. We do this to remember. We do it to embrace and to actually act out to, within ourselves to live out what has already been done on our behalf. That the God of heaven left the privilege of that place. That he humbled himself, becoming a human to come alongside us. That for a while he walked with us and showed us how we might live differently. And then he died a death in our place that we might find true life and freedom. God, we are grateful. We are grateful to be your people. We are grateful to live in this world. And we are grateful that you invite us to stop fighting for everything we want because we can trust that you are a God who will give us what we most truly need. It's in your name we pray.